What's inside a pack of baseball cards? This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Our guest today is Brad Baluchian. Thanks for coming on the show, Brad. Thanks for having me, Bob. Brad Baluchian teaches biology at Merritt College in Oakland, California. He's published articles in Rolling Stone, Los Angeles Times, National Geographic, Smithsonian. Brad Baluchian is the author of The Wax Pack on the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife. It's uh, put out by the University of Nebraska Press. What is the premise of the book, Brad? Well, the premise is that uh, I got a pack of baseball cards from 1986, which is the first year that I remember collecting cards as a kid, and a pack that had never been opened. And I said, okay, whatever 15 guys are in this pack, I'm going to track them down now, 30 years later, and tell the story of you know what ended up happening with all these athletes, these guys that were my heroes as a kid. And so I embark on this 11,000-mile road trip for seven weeks, and the book is really the story of the trip and sort of my story as I go along and meet these guys and um, find out what happened to them. Yeah, what a great idea, especially in these troubled times. I think this will give pleasure to a lot of people. And let me give pleasure to you for a moment. You wanted to be sure to get in your uh, website for, for book purchases? Yeah, so the book actually finally comes out today. Uh, you can go to waxpackbook.com and you can get it there. Uh, so I'm really excited to finally have it out there. Now, that pack of baseball cards, it, it seemed a little... Uh, not, not dodgy, but something. Uh, was it? Was this something from your past? Something that you'd had in a shoebox all those years, or how did you get it? <laughs> well, to clear up the dodginess, um, no. It's, this is this. I didn't have the pack all that time. I had the idea to write a book using the pack as the structure. So once I had the idea, I actually went and ordered a pack because a lot of collectors from that era, you know, kept their packs close and never opened them. So I was able to get a pack that had remained closed for 30 years and then opened it and went from there. Uh-huh. Now the question I understand that guided you was, is there life after baseball? Do you, do you have an answer to that question after tracking down all these guys? Yeah, there certainly is. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, a life that has a lot of challenges. Um, you know, a lot of, I really focused on, what these guys did right right after they stopped playing because, you know, it's a very unusual uh, thing that most of us can't relate to that in your, in your mid-30s and you can no longer, you know, these players can no longer do the one thing they had spent their whole lives thinking about. And so what did they do with the rest of their lives? Um, but I would say that there were a lot of unexpected things that came out of the book that I, I didn't necessarily know going in that um, had a lot to do with, these players really opening up and being vulnerable and sharing things about their non-baseball lives with me. So, um, for example, a lot of guys had had really strained relationships with their fathers, were abusive fathers or fathers that had, had abandoned them. And it was really interesting to see that emerge as a, as a common thread and then to explore how, how they reacted to that and how that affected um, their baseball careers and their, their lives after baseball. 
Mm. Let's talk about the men in the wax pack. Um, and I'll, I'll just say this once and you can make of it what you will. I, I, I think this is a great topic, but I'm not really a sports fan and certainly not a baseball fan. And I know a lot of people who are, and I know people are just interested in this, but I really only knew the names of two of the people in your wax pack. I mean, two of the players, uh, one being Carlton Fisk, the other being Doc Gooden. Uh, tell us about uh, Carlton Fisk. He was a catcher for Boston and Chicago. I, I believe he's the only one in, in this particular baseball card grouping to make it to the Hall of Fame. That's correct. And, and I'll say, Bob, even even um, though you may not be a baseball fan, I think what I, what I what I want to get across is that the book really is not a baseball book. It's really about a lot um, bigger things, a lot of bigger themes like uh, growing up and the lost innocence. And, you know, it's very much of a narrative uh, in which I tell my story sort of weaved in with the other players. And so I think I've had, a, you know, the, uh, it's been a nice compliment that a lot of people who are not baseball fans have said they really enjoyed it. Um, but to your question, yeah, Carlton Fisk was a Hall of Fame catcher for the Red Sox and the White Sox. Um, and as you might expect, guys like Carlton and, and Doc Gooden being the, the big stars in the pack were actually the, some of the more difficult guys to, to get to track down. And so um, I actually with with Fisk, he would he refused to talk to me. So I that chapter is about kind of me using these guerrilla tactics to, to <laughs> find try to find him on a golf course in Florida where I pretend like I'm a millionaire home buyer to sneak onto the golf course. And it's, it's kind of a fun chapter. Um, but uh, the players that were not the stars, I think, actually emerge as the stars of the book in the sense that mm-hmm. they were. Uh, the most interesting, the most uh, forthcoming, um, and I think really, it's sort of a, the it's kind of like the tortoise, you know, the tortoise and the hare fable. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that the, a right. lot of the tortoises end up carrying the book. Okay, but so Carlton Fisk, I mean, do you know what he's doing now? I mean, you you never did talk to him. I did, yeah. So I did talk to him. Um, so he's, so he's like you know the one player who was so successful in his baseball career. He never really had to do anything after he finished playing. He was, you know, he had enough money. He could continue signing. I mean, right now he's basically just been retired and he'll make occasional appearances and sign autographs for a hefty fee. Um, but uh, he's kind of a recluse. You know, he does, he's never liked the spotlight, uh, doesn't do a lot of appearances. And so um, I did end up getting to briefly talk to him, but, um, but yeah, I'd say he's just uh, in retirement. What about Doc Gooden? He was a pitcher, right? Mets and Yankees. Yeah, Doc Gooden was a was a phenom. Uh, you know, I mean, such a star that his a, a giant, yeah, thirty seven foot uh, image of him was on a building in in, in Manhattan in the mid eighties. Um, he has had a very troubled life, and and his story is sort of a tragic one of addiction and relapsing. Um, you know, it looked like when I was on the trip to, to find all these guys, it looked like he was had finally been clean for a while. And then that chapter is is very sad because I end up in the midst of one of his, um, essentially one of his relapses. I end up trying to track him down and, and I end up in his house talking to his family, but he ends up not being there. So it's kind of a, mm. you know, a, another sad chapter in his story. Wow. Um, now, Rance 
Mullenix, I'm not sure I'm, I'm saying that correctly, yeah, right. uh, played shortstop, third base. Uh, you ended up taking a hitting lesson from him? Yeah, well, that was one of the fun things in the book is I wanted it to be, you know, I wanted the reader to really be entertained and to come on, come with me on this journey. And it's a lot more interesting to, to uh, participate actively with these guys and do different things and just sit there and, and interview them. So Vance Mullenix runs the Hitting Academy in California. I got to watch him give a lesson and then kind of get a lesson from him. Um, uh, Don Carmen, I went to the zoo with him. Randy Reddy, I went bowling and went to the gym. I went to an art museum with one guy. You know, I was able to get out and kind of do a lot of different things that I think makes it a lot, a lot more interesting. Hmm. Now, Jamie Kokenauer was a pitcher. Uh, he was three years in the majors, I guess, in in Milwaukee. Is that true? I mean, was he the one with the shortest baseball career? Yeah. So uh, yeah, actually, Heidi Kuchenauer. He uh, he had the by far the shortest and most lackluster baseball career of all the guys. But uh, again, back to that tortoise and the hare thing. Probably the the happiest and most well adjusted life after baseball. Uh, really, you know, he never, he never really, um, he never really, uh, you know, made it in baseball. But he was always very strategic. I mean, most of these guys didn't go to college. You know, they didn't have anything to fall back on. But Kokenauer, he got his his degree from Baylor in, in accounting, and his, the the day he finished playing baseball, he went right into a an accounting office and and had a job. So. Um, yeah, he's done very well for himself uh, after after the game was was done. Hmm. Like, like where would, where does he live, for example? I mean, maybe he can't be too he, specific. He, yeah, no, he's in he's in Northwest Arkansas, uh, the Ozark country there, and he's. Uh, I mean, again, he got beautiful house on a on a on a place called Beaver Lake, um, and again, probably one of the uh, the, the most well adjusted, well off guys um, in the pack. We're talking with the Brad Baluchian, the author of The Wax Pack, On the Open Road in Search of Baseball's uh, Afterlife. I want to go back to the, the players in a moment, but you've mentioned, I think, a couple of times that this was, a, I mean, this was a big journey for you, traveling. How, first off, how were you able to do this? I mean, you, you teach school, right? I mean, you didn't have all this time to take off, or did you? Well, <laughs> Well, I don't teach usually in the summer session, so um, it was over the summer in seven weeks, and yeah, I know it was a big it was a big risk for me. I mean, I didn't have a book deal or any kind of funding to do this, so it was on my own dime. Um, and uh, but I, you know, I I really felt strongly. I've always believed in in the project and in telling this story, and so I looked at it as an investment in an experience at the very least. Hmm. One of the players was uh, Gary Templeton, shortstop, played for several teams, St. Louis, New York Mets. 15 years he was in majors, uh, and you ended up watching uh, kung fu movies with him, it says. Yeah, so again, uh, it was it was delightful to get to see these guys in their home environments, to spend some time with them. Uh, he happens to be a, a big fan of kung fu movies, so we're in his house and suburban San Diego. We, we watched some old baseball games that he played in. We watched Kung Fu. Um, we got to go out and got a, got a meal together. And, and again, got to interview his wife, 
so I got to really, I think, peel back, you know, go behind the curtain with these guys that, again, was kind of surreal because these were the guys whose cards as a kid I, I collected and I alphabetized and I obsessed over. So it was really neat to, to now see them, uh, you know, for, through my eyes as an adult. Is that how, it sounds like you had a good time with Gary Templeton. Is that how it went with most of them, you know, ex- except, oddly enough, the two biggies, Carlton Fisk, who, who didn't want to talk to you, but you finally uh, did, and Doc Gooden, who was having his problems uh, when when you uh, got to talk to him. Yeah, um, I'd say for the most of the guys that I met up with were, were very pleasant experiences. Um, you know, some of them, like Richie Hebner was a guy who played many years for Pittsburgh and the Phillies and the Cubs, and uh, is actually from Massachusetts. And he was a little more guarded. Uh, he was, I, I got, he was in the middle of a baseball season as a hitting coach for a minor league team. So he may not have just been as relaxed as some of the other guys that are, you know, had more time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I was generally impressed with how forthcoming they were and, um, and talking about a lot besides just their, their baseball exploits. That was Richie Hebner. I, I missed the name, kind of. Yeah, Richie Did Richie you're... Hebner. Yes, and he's a. Uh, I mean, I saw this. Uh, he's a batting coach for the Buffalo um, farm team for somebody. He was, yeah. When well, he's retired now, he's not coaching anymore. But when I was on the trip, he was coaching Buffalo, and also an interesting. He's a grave digger, so his. He always worked in the off season digging graves with his father, and and even now he he works does a lot of um, funerals as a driving the hearse and helping with funerals uh, in Massachusetts. Who'd have thunk it, right? Yeah. One of one of the members of the this particular wax pack, one of the members is deceased. Can you tell us about him? Yeah, Al Cowens, uh, really interesting guy. The only, as you said, the only player that was no longer with us. Um, and so for his chapter, he grew up in Watts and Compton in, in the Los Angeles area. And um, so the trip ends with me. So I start in Oakland, where I, where I live, go all the way around the country and end up back in California and Compton. And so I end up going to his high school and attending a uh, alumni association meeting and happen to meet someone who knows his cousin, who also played baseball, so his cousin takes me around all the streets of Watts and Compton and t- tells me about, you know, the Watts race riots in the sixties and what it was like to grow up there and kind of tells me Al Cowan's story, you know, through, through his perspective and also got to talk to Al Cowan's son Purvis. Um, and, and really an interesting, I mean, he grew up just in such a, a tough um, upbringing with, you know, just dealing with, um, the gang warfare that was breaking out in that area and uh, his struggles with that. And, and also with, you know, there was a lot of one of the things that comes out in this book is uh, some race issues and how difficult it was, how a lot of black players from in the seventies and eighties were treated really unfairly um, mm-hmm. and how, uh, you know, their experiences in, 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 in baseball and how, how much harder it was for them uh, to, to break through. Mm. And he died at, at age 50, right, from a heart attack? Yeah, he died very young. Um, and his son, you know, was very outspoken about, he felt like, uh, his son almost had sort of conspiracy theories on, on what happened there. I mean, 
from what I can tell, everything that was reported was that he, he had a heart attack, but, uh, you know, his son told me about how his father had, had started speaking out a lot about major league baseball and kind of how he felt that a lot of the players were kind of disposed of after they were done playing and the, the you know, the league didn't really treat them very well. And so, you know, you have to read the, his son has some interesting ideas about that, but, mm. but Cowan certainly, um, you know, he had his, he had his issues, but, but very well-liked, well-respected, um, Again, just um, some of those stories about, I mean, he, his, his cousin told me when they were in Florida in the early 70s, trying, just trying to get a, a motel room to rent. And they go to the front desk and the guy behind the desk opens up the door and shows that he has a Ku Klux Klan hood and basically says, you know, you guys aren't welcome here. And I mean, that's the kind of culture that some of these guys grew up in. Hmm. You know, Rick Sutliff, who was a pitcher in the in the major leagues, I believe, eighteen years, he ended up doing what seems to me a number of former ball players do. Wasn't he a broad a broadcaster for some time? Yeah, he's still on. Uh, he's still on ESPN now. Um, he's a very well known broadcaster. Uh, made the transition very well uh, after he was done playing. Um, and so, but you know, again, like one of the things that comes across in the book is how much we actually have in common with these guys in the sense mm-hmm. that a lot of the things that they dealt with or they're dealing with are the same things that we deal with. And Sutcliffe talks about how he had a bout of colon cancer that was a, a big scare to his family and his issues with his father who left the fa- just completely left, left the family, abandoned him when he was pretty young, um, and sort of how those things affected you know, his trajectory. You mentioned uh, early in the interview about going to the zoo with Don Carmen. How, how did that come to be? Why did why was he going to the zoo? Well, it's more like it's more like I asked him to meet me there um, again because I wanted to vary the kinds of places that I met with these guys. And I thought Don Carmen, who was my my favorite player as a kid, um, I thought you know what better invokes childhood than the zoo? So when I Came, went to Naples, Florida, where he lives. I said, "Hey, let's let's meet up at the zoo." And he was he was you know very accommodating with that. So we had a nice a nice day there. And um, yeah, hmm. it's, so he was one of your favorite players in the. And you were collecting baseball cards or, or very interested in in baseball when this uh, wax pack was created, right? The mid eighties. Yeah, I grew. So I'm I'm 39 now. I was six years old in 86. Um, and yeah, I, I collected the cards and Carmen was my favorite player. Um, I was always unusual and that I, I didn't follow the crowd. Uh, there's probably very few people that would say Don Carmen was their favorite player, <laughs> but, um, but he was, he was my guy. So it was, you know, extra special to, to have him in the pack. Yeah. And he was a pitcher, right? Yeah. He pitched for the, the Phillies and his, He's had maybe the most interesting job now in that after he finished playing, he went sort of after going through his period of drinking and, and kind of depression, he came out of that, went to school, got his bachelor's, got his master's, now working on a doctorate, and is the uh, staff psychologist for Scott Boris, who is the most famous sports agent in the world, who represents the biggest players in baseball right now. And Carmen is basically on call for these 
megastars to give them the therapy they need, uh, you know, during the season. Wow. Uh, your publicist calls your book a meditation on the loss of innocence and the gift of impermanence. Can you explain that? Sure. Um, so the first part is just about how, you know, maybe baseball we very much associate with, with childhood, I think, and there's sort of a, you know, a, an innocence to the game, but we all, we all grow up, right? Some, you know, we, as just as people, we all become adults and we, 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 we all experience some loss of innocence at some point in our lives. And, you know, for baseball players, as we found out in the book, that happens earlier than expected and that a lot of these guys, you know, with these sure, ch- troubled childhoods lost their innocence way too early. Um, and then, again, when they stopped playing, um, you know, playing a game for a living, they kind of had to make that transition again. So mm-hmm. uh, the, the impermanence aspect is just that I think, you know, I call baseball players accidental Buddhists because <laughs> one of the, the take-home messages of the book is that really, um, you know, the key to happiness or contentment is, is being as, as much in the present moment as possible. And, you know, these players were really good at that. And to be successful in baseball, you have to immediately let go of the inevitable and, and common and frequent failure you experience and not, you know, get hung up on what's going to come next. And so it's a kind of a nice prescription for how to approach your life. Um, that the only, you know, everything changes, everything's impermanent and, all the more reason to make the most of whatever's right in front of you. Do you know how uh, whoever puts out the baseball cards decides which players go in a wax pack? I mean, why did they pick these guys? Well, that's, so that's the fun part is that it is random. And the beginning and the end of the book is set in the um, factory in Pennsylvania where they actually manufactured the cards. And I actually went and tracked down the, the actual employees who made the cards back in 1985. And they walked me through the entire process of how they made the cards and bundled them. And when you read that process, you realize basically, you know, they, the, the, the uh, cards are on a giant sheet that comes from the printer and then they cut the cards and then they get bundled on the, on an assembly line in a completely random fashion. So, who ends up in a pack? There is no rhyme or reason to it. It's just a, a random sample. Hmm. Do you still have your baseball card collection? I do. My, I'm one of the few whose mom didn't throw them out. So um, they're <laughs> actually in storage. Uh, you know, sometimes I'll take them out because they're just an instant uh, time traveling device for me. Um, and I really, you know, still enjoy, I don't like the new card today um, but i still like to look at those cards from childhood did you actually chew the bubble gum in the whatever 36 year old wax pack yeah and, and live to talk about it i did it, it uh <laughs> yeah, after hearing from the the factory workers how they actually made the gum it's even more appalling but, uh, but no that was kind of a rite of passage for me how did they make the gum well, they, they, they have these giant fats, and the, they, the ingredients include, like, latex and, and sugar and calcium, and all these, you know, sort of artificial ingredients. And, you, and I, 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 you know, I kind of detail that in the book, how they, they have these the giant vats, and then they have to pour them into these trays and then hand-crack the individual sticks, and very labor-intensive and uh, not very appetizing.
Now, I understand you retraced your own past, reconnecting with lost loves and coming to terms with your battle with obsessive compulsive disorder. Can you tell us about you? Yeah. So again, to make, I think to make this book, um, we realized its true potential. I, I, I knew that it had to have um, kind of a, a connective tissue to bring all these players together. So I play that role as a main character in the narrative and openly discuss, you know, my own issues with OCD and anxiety disorders and kind of relate the, the experiences of, of the players to my own issues with OCD. And also as a, someone in my mid thirties who's still single with no kids talk about um, kind of the expectations that I had for my life and the relationships that I've had and where I've made mistakes and uh, actually go and find uh, an ex uh, on the, on the road. I reunite with her for a meeting. So I looked at it as a, as kind of a cathartic experience to, to go through my own life along with these players. Did you uh, stick with the lost love, or she went off into the sunset again? No, no, no. She, she, she was already married and everything. It was more just getting some closure on. You know, I hadn't seen her in almost ten years since we had broken up, so it was nice to get that closure. And was it the famous George Will who said about your book, as pleasing as the pink slab of bubble gum that long ago came with baseball cards, this slender volume gives fresh flavor to the familiar phrase, inside baseball. Was that the George Will who said that? that, that right, that is the George Will, yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think this is a very good book. And again, especially at this time, do you find thinking about baseball helped you in this uh, on this uh, troubled time we're having? Yeah, I think, um, the, you know, the thing about baseball that I, I describe in the book is it's, it's really, it's a backdrop for building relationships, right? It's, it's about, it's, you know, it's a very slow game. It's a ponderous game, but it's a game that it lends itself to, the, you know, all those those lulls in the action provide all these opportunities for people to to build relationships and and socialize. And I think that's why people love going to baseball games. You know, even if they're not big baseball fans, it's, it's just, it brings people together. So, although we don't have live games now, I think it's um it's a, it's a very literary sport, and it's a chance to you know still ex- indulge in in baseball without actually having the games. Brad Baluchian, you've got to go. Thank you for talking with us. Thank you very much, Bob. I appreciate it. The Historian's Podcast depends on your contributions to keep going with interviews every week on history topics ranging from local to regional to national to international. You can find a link to our GoFundMe campaign on our main website, bobcudmore.com. It's over on the right. And you can just click that, and then uh, you'll get to GoFundMe, and they'll explain how to donate. If you'd like to send a check in the mail, make the check out to me, Bob Cudmore. Send to 125 Horseman Drive in Scotia, New York, 12302. The guest today was Brad Baluchian, the author of The Wax Pack on the Open Road in Search of Baseball's Afterlife published by University of Nebraska Press. Here are the members of the baseball world, if you will, uh, that he follows in the book. They were all 
in one uh, pack of baseball cards back in the 1980s. Carlton Fisk, Doc Gooden, Rance Mullenix, Jamie Kokenauer, Steve Yeager, Gary Templeton, Gary Pettis, Randy Reddy, Don Carmen, Vince Coleman, Lee Mazzilli, Rich Hebner, Rick Sutcliffe, and the late Al Cohen's. That's uh, the new book, uh, which has just been published by University of Nebraska Press by a big baseball fan who happens to be a biology uh, professor out in California, a man named Brad Baluchian. It's a very uh, interesting book. I think you'd enjoy it. <laughs> 